This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Here's my communication challenge this morning as I seek to teach you all Psalm 23 from the Bible. It actually isn't um, a preacher's challenge that we have at places like Easter and Christmas Eve where just about everybody, except some of you that may be exploring God, have heard these things before. That's true about Psalm 23. If you have any familiarity with the Bible, you likely know this psalm. That isn't my great challenge this morning. Here's my challenge. You're going to believe that what the Bible says is too good to be true. My, my challenge is it's just going to be hard for all of us to accept that the declaration poetically rendered in Psalm 23 could be as graphically true, as personally true as what we're given. I mean, is it true that God really loves me as much as Psalm 23 declares? Is it true that in His love it is this personal and this comprehensive? The genius poem that is Psalm 23, a brief, a few dozen words, seemingly simple poem, captures in a way that only something with the divine power and inspiration of God Himself captures the deeply personal and utterly comprehensive love of God. And in Psalm 23, we are given through one image after another in use of language, understanding that God's love in this case, and in many cases throughout the Scriptures, is taught to us as a love that leads us, that the love of God is the leadership of God. Psalms fall in different categories. If you were with us this summer, we did a series on the Psalms, and you, you learned about Psalms of lament and Psalms of praise. Scholars say with Psalm 23, it doesn't fit well in any category. One scholar calls it the psalm of confidence. Confidence that who God says He is, is true, is real, even if it seems too good to be true. As a matter of fact, one thing I want to encourage you as a, as a Bible student, and one thing I have to watch as a Bible teacher, is that in this case, I don't over-interpret Psalm 23. Interpretation of the Bible is very important, and I want you to learn how to interpret the Scriptures when you read them and study them. Just let this psalm breathe. Let this genius rendering, just let it speak. We read of the leadership of God and that He leads our days, verses 1 to 3. We'll break down the psalm a bit structurally. He leads our days, verses 1 to 3. He leads your death-like seasons, verse 4. He leads you through interpersonal division, verse 5. Indeed, we can say now that one day we will look back at our lives, at the end of our lives, and see that in verse 6, He led 
and pursued. He was in front and behind. He both led and followed all the days of our life. Indeed, He leads us into eternity and for all eternity. Look at the first verse there. The Lord is my shepherd. If you've been around resurrection for a while, you are familiar with our teaching in which we try to actually unlock all of us from the fixation on the individual within American culture and within parts of American Christian culture. And we try to get you to understand the fullness of the corporate reality of Jesus and the corporate body and the church and the household and that you're not just a single individual. You have a relationship with the Lord that comes through a life of prayer within, small, within evening prayer and morning prayer and other things. And that's all absolutely true. But of course, maturity of thought requires that we can hold two things, not that are contradictory, but that are distinct together. And here we have all that reality of our corporate relationship with God, but here we also have a very personal testimony of God's love for you, that God wants a personal relationship with you. And he's some of you that were given the gift of being raised evangelical. We're taught often of the personal relationship with God, and perhaps as you've come into other traditions and other thinking, you're expanding that understanding that it includes the church as well, and that's absolutely true, but could it also be that even today you can reclaim that gift also given to you. That indeed, as it turns out, Jesus does want to be your best friend. And your Lord. And the Lord of all time. Oh, he can lead the cosmos and lead your minute-by-minute -minute life. He's a personal shepherd. David, the author of this, knew the personal love of God, and he wrote a poem that we might enter into that. He uses the language of shepherd. There's a wonderful book by Dr. Timothy Laniac. Dr. Timothy Laniac is an Old Testament Hebrew scripture scholar. And he talks about so often he has to understand his field of study through archaeological finds and ancient documents, but he realized that there are still some shepherd cultures, Bedouin cultures in the Middle East that reflect the ancient Near East. So he spent months and months with uh, Bedouin tribes to understand the life of a shepherd. He quotes from one of these shepherds, a man named Abu Munir. He says, Abu Munir had a flock of 2,000, so he was an affluent shepherd. He didn't need to be out in the fields. He had many that worked for him. So he asked him, how often do you have contact with the 2,000 sheep? Abu Munir said this, quote, I am with the sheep every day. In the summer, I sleep outside with them too. And then he said, somewhat incredulous that the question would even be asked by this ignorant Westerner, if I weren't with them every day, I wouldn't be their shepherd. Another shepherd said, I can't live without the sheep their family. He discovered that shepherds would name each one of the sheep, hundreds of them, and knew them by their characteristics. Which is to say what? 
which is to say that when David chooses the image, the predominant image of this poem as shepherd and starts with it, he wants to be very clear. God, who now we know fully in Jesus, knows you and wants to have time with you very personally. He wants to be around you all the time. this is helpful. We have a phrase, if you're exploring God, you may not be familiar with this phrase, but you may hear it if you hang around with us long enough. And I will admit that I'm a little preacher cranky about this phrase. And as preachers, you try not to use the pulpit to pull out your cranky things. I think this is important, though. I'm not crazy about the phrase that we'll use after a great worship service or a prayer time together that seemed especially vivid. God showed up particularly in light of this, it would seem that more accurately what happens when we have times like that, when we experience the presence of the Lord, is we showed up. Amen? Amen. It would seem, according to the Scriptures, that God has shown up. God is the shown up one. He's here. He's the shepherd. He's always with his sheep. Indeed, if a sheep goes astray, we're told by the Lord Jesus later, he goes after that sheep, even that one sheep amidst the flock. We need not worry that God show up. God is here. God is present. God is seeking after you, speaking your name. We show up. We show up in the life of prayer. We show up in the life of Bible reading. We show up in the life of the church. We show up in times of prayer. We show up and we find that God is there speaking our name. It's that personal. He's that connected. Augustine, the early church thinker, said this, when you say the Lord is my shepherd... There are then no proper grounds to trust in yourself. I will not want, I shall not want. What does that mean? For many of us living in a commerce society, we immediately think, I won't lack for financial provision. And there are teachings in the scriptures that say God will provide for our material needs. I don't think that's the context here. I shall not want for leadership. I shall not want for him who created days that are broken down into hours that are broken down into minutes. I shall not lack the one who will lead me through my daily life. God's love for us is showing that he leads us through our days. There's no other way to get through this life than to live your day after day after day. And a shepherd lives day after day and hour after hour with the sheep. He wants to lead your minutes to accompany you, to feed you on the spring green grass. You will not lack his leadership. And what we will see as we continue to journey, though, is that as he leads us, his leadership is one that leads us through. He leads us through from one place to another. He leads us through with green pasture. He leads us through. We'll get to still waters in just a moment. That indeed, the way God's sort of strategy 
for loving us through these lives, in our lives, is to love us through our life from one place to another. Which is different than how many of us live our lives. For a lot of us, we get caught in one of two places on the daily life reality because the pain can be so great, the disappointment so acute, the exhaustion is so overwhelming. So we live our life by nostalgia. We don't want to go through. We actually want to stop and pivot and just look back. And we may do that in many different realms of life. Oh, if life was that way, it may be personal, it, it, it could be an aesthetic, it could be a political. If only life was still that way. Oh, how I wish life was still that way. And there are plenty of media programs where they themselves are stuck in nostalgia and they will feed Pick it, your 90s nostalgia, your 80s nostalgia, your 19th century Jane Austen nostalgia. Ooh, now I'm meddling at Church of the Resurrection. <laughs> or we want to escape the future. So we either want to go to the nostalgic past or we want to escape the future. We want to somehow get out of where I am. I want to get out of my day. How can I escape this hour that I'm in? Can I somehow get out of it? Can I, can, can I be lifted out of it? Could I be, could I be is, there, is there some other religious system besides Christianity that would somehow help me deny what's happening right now in the time? Well, there's plenty of religious systems that can try to get you to deny what's happening right now. It'll be crisis. It'll be darkness. Indeed, the heart of God, the heart of Jesus, the heart of the shepherd is to lead you through from one place to another. Through your minutes, through your hours, through your days, with him, by him, for him, under him. To do so, you'll need cleansing. You will need still waters. Which he leaves beside, verse 3, he restores our soul. It's hard to know exactly what David was wanting to capture in the image of still water. Scholars work different perspectives on that. One that I found compelling is that still water, while it is a place for the sheep to drink, there's actually a cleansing, bathing place in the still water, which connects with the teaching that he restores our souls. He, the word there could be revive, the word could be there could be return. And it has a word connection to repent. That what happens is as we come to the still water, the Lord, the shepherd, cleanses the sheep, the Lord cleanses our souls, that to get through our hourly, daily lives, we must learn the regularity of identifying that we have sinned, repenting of that sin, and going to that still water that is always there in your day. It's the cross that we can understand as the still water. It's the place where we can repent and be cleansed of our sin. So to get through your hour and your day, you will need the cross of Jesus. You will need the still water of cleansing where you can say, whoa, whoa, oh my word, my mind just went there again. That was a rageful thought. Oh, I just looked at that person not once but twice or three times and I objectified them. I repent, and I go to the still waters of the way in which the shepherd leads me. And then he'll lead me in the paths of right living, righteousness. 
Let me get a shift, verse 4. We're shifting now from spring green grass. We're, we're shifting from still cleansing waters to a valley. He leads us, yes, through our days, but He leads us through death-like seasons, brush with physical death, spiritual death. Even, indeed, He leads us through death itself. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The valley still in the Middle East, the valley in the ancient Near East, indeed, valleys can be that place where you don't know what's coming next. Unlike an open field where you can see around you within the valley, your sight is significantly hampered. When we move into a death-like valley, a wilderness, a desert, a time of desolation, we find that we can't see the fullness of who God is. We, we can't see anything but what's right ahead of us, and yet what's right ahead of us seems so potentially perilous. The frailty of our human condition is we don't know what's next. There is no technology. There is no brilliance. There is no spiritual insight that can tell us exactly what will happen next in our lives. And like those in a valley, we must make our way through with the walls high on both sides, the caves filled with bandits and marauders and wild animals, not knowing when they will indeed spring on us. But the poet wants to make clear, the Lord's love will be there for you in the green grass. He will be there for you beside the still waters. But don't you love Jesus and the scriptures that say he will be with you in the valley. Oh, the grit of Christianity. The grit of the life with God that he understands the valley will come. How do you get through the valley? Like you get through your hour. Like you get through your day. You go through with him. It's a beautiful passage in that great epic, The Lord of the Rings, where the one who will be named King Aragorn, who is leading the fellowship, realizes that to get to the place of the final battle and to get to the place of his kingship, he must first go through what are called the paths of the dead, a, a place where the dead reside with great menace and great power, that none have survived who have walked through these paths of the dead. And it, it reads, for those of us that know Psalm 23, as a kind of fictional graphic account of the valley of the shadow of death. What's terrifying about the paths of the dead is that there aren't necessarily ghosts or ogres or witches that are going to jump out at you. It's that you don't know what's ahead and you have this incredible sense of dread that the valley so often for so many of us doesn't have necessarily a causal effect, although it certainly can but that the valley is just that thing that all of a sudden happens, that anxiety that finally spills over, that depression that finally completely just pushes us down to the floor, whatever it might be, that experience of two years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, of what could be still coming, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in a desolation as anything but freedom, and we can't see. We don't know where we're going. Gimli was the stalwart dwarf they considered himself a man, well, a dwarf of courage, led by Aragorn. And as Gimli goes into these paths of the dead, Tolkien writes, and it's so true for so many of us who've been in the valley, he was pursued 
by a groping horror that seemed always just about to seize him. Isn't that the experience of the valley? Like the panic is almost there. At any moment, I may fall into panic. I may fall into horror. I may be seized by this thing. Continue the quote. Gimli stumbled on until he was crawling like a beast on the ground and felt that he could endure no more. Some valleys, you crawl through them. Amen? Some valleys are so fearsome, so overwhelming. You're so without the spiritual sight that you had in the green grass that you get down on your hands and knees and you crawl your way through. But there's one who has crawled before you. There's one who the Bible says hems you in before and behind. There's one whose rod and staff, that which guards you and that which guides you, that when you cannot see in the wilderness and the valley will get you from one side to the other. The truth of the teaching of the scriptures is the only way through the valley is through. But the truth of the teaching of the scriptures is that he, the good shepherd, has laid down his life for the sheep. Amen? We're confident in this. And that his rod, his staff, that know every rock in that valley for they've gone ahead. They know every wild beast in that cave that may spring out at you. The rod and staff know what's coming. And they will guide even your crawl to the other side. And now we have the ministry of the cross and we have the ministry of the resurrection of Jesus Christ whereby he has taken that last enemy, death, and his conquering of death and his rising again has taken death that feels to us the ultimate peril and he has made it passage to him, to all of him. This is the good news. In the valley, and some of you are crawling right now. I know. I've crawled. That's part of being a follower of Jesus is we have a testimony of crawling and of being led by the rod, the staff, guarded and guided. Okay, here's the thing. Um, if you're crawling, you're just crawling. You're not crawling going, isn't this an amazing experience that I will one day give testimony to that I crawled. When you're crawling, all you're doing is crawling. That's all you can see is what's right in front of you. And if you're feeling the pain of the stones upon your hand, then you're just feeling pain. Indeed, the great challenge of the valley is that you don't even even know you're in a valley. You may not even be a name to valley yet. You just know that things don't seem right, that you're not doing well. You're really not doing well. 
And indeed, to understand verse 4, you have to go to verse 6 and interpret verse 4 in light of verse 6, that indeed we will say, even if we're not in the moment, we will say, and we can say with such confidence in this confident psalm, surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. That indeed I may not feel it now, but I will say with the psalmist in the present that that will be true of me. And that I will have the ability to look back at the end of my life or the end of my day or the end of that hour or the end of that season and know he got me through. His rod and his staff were absolutely comforting. As I've borne testimony in my own brush with physical death that was the most disconcerting spiritual experience I've had when I fell very ill in Nigeria on a preaching mission 15 months ago. The five days where I was ill, I couldn't see. I didn't know where I was going. I, I didn't know where the Lord's presence was. His presence that I so awfully and sweetly know is my shepherd. It wasn't until I returned to the States and I was hospitalized as if in the very first moment when he knew that I could hear, he gave me a nocturnal dream. And in that dream, he said to me, my rod and my staff, they comforted you. He then leads from our days and our brush with death seasons, and even ultimately our death, he then leads through what may seem a little bit less intense, but actually if you've experienced it, can be maybe the worst thing that often happens, which is the reality of experiencing enemies. He prepares a table before us, verse 5, in the presence of our enemies. This, this does need some interpretation. So this is David. And we know that David was a warrior. He was a soldier, a leader of armies. So we can certainly expect that part of what he was saying was actual combat enemies, the Philistines, for example, in which he would actually be allies with the times and he would be enemies and, and, and battle with the times. But we also know as we interpret this, understand this from David's own story, that very possibly at the end of his life, he might have said that the greatest pain that came in his life was through interpersonal division those who were in his own family, those who were in his own cadre, generals that he had come to completely trust that would turn against him, that indeed for many of us, very few of us have been in combat. What we do know is actually the experience of those who have been close, who we experience division with, deep division with, interpersonal division, which the enemy, capital E, the devil often stirs up. That's the presence of enemies that many of us know are actually those that we love so much. Where there's a betrayal, a rejection. And the promise here, again, is a promise of Jesus through that even in the midst of a season of interpersonal division, the table is set there. 
Not even afterwards. Okay, when you get through this season, you'll have the table. It's there. The church has always understood this as the Eucharistic table, and rightly so. But it's a feeding. It's actually a banquet. To learn to walk with the shepherd who personally knows us and loves us is to learn to feed in a time of great privation, which is how often division is experienced as a privation, as, as a lack. When you go through division, when you lose a relationship, you lose a close friendship, you actually feel like someone's turned on you, it is a great sense that there is something lacking. There is something gone that was once there, and that's precisely what it is, and that is why the banquet is set for you there. Though while you may have feasted on the joys of that relationship or friendship or partnership, you have the feast of the Lord. Carl Morlantis is a remarkable writer in our day. He went to Yale undergraduate. He won a Rhodes Scholarship. In the middle of it, he felt called to enlist to fight in Vietnam. So he became an infantry leader, led dozens of combat missions in the mountains near Laos in Vietnam. He's written several books. One book that he wrote is What It's Like to Go to War. And in it he says that when you're a warrior and you're on that front line amidst the absolute misery of the rot of bodies around you, you need a spiritual guide. He himself is not what we would call an Orthodox Christian. He was raised such. He's more of a Jungian um, sort of world, mythic worlds where he's landed. But he said, I didn't care if it was Bible. I didn't care what it was. I needed somebody to come into that place, that time, and bring me something beautiful, bring me something bigger than what we were living. So he said, you could imagine the day that we were told a chaplain was coming in to be there on the front line with courage to be dropped by a helicopter into our midst, how we awaited what he would bring us. We were ready for something of truth, something of beauty. And can you imagine how crushed I was when he, thinking he would please us, brought us cases of beer and tons of drugs. And that wasn't what we needed. We had our escape. We had our nostalgia. We needed a table set for us in the presence of our enemies. And that is the gift of what Jesus has won on the cross and the resurrection. That is precisely the confidence we have. Oh, this is so needed. Oh, yes, weekly on the Lord's Day. Daily needed. And some of you, if you're in a particular season of near-death valley or interpersonal division, you may need daily the ministry of the banquet of Jesus that we minister every morning here at Resurrection and morning prayer, Eucharist. We get to verse 6, a retrospective in the moment. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He's claiming now what will be true at the end of his life, that I will see that God followed. Another way would be to say pursued me all the time. He not only led me, he pursued me. He was personally connected to my days. He was personally with me in death-like valleys. He personally cared for me and fed me 
amidst painful interpersonal division. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.